This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. If you thought for even one minute that by the weekend, this Greenbelt report that came out Wednesday would kind of be less of a story by Friday. That really does happen sometimes because our attention goes, shoop, moves to something else. Shoop, something else even beyond that. Not the case here. Not the case here so far. And we even talked about the fact that there's like been a couple of huge stories and a couple of things that people have been really interested in. Taylor Swift tickets going on sale. There's two more shows today at 11 and 1. The last two go on sale. If you have a code, you're excited. If you don't, you're not. And you're frustrated. And the city even putting shovels in the ground on a housing project that's taken five years. And then even yesterday, Mayor Olivia Chow's council appointments. I think they've all been backseated by the Greenbelt report. And I see this headline in the Toronto Star this morning, and I get it. Uh, Robert Benzies, the Queen's Park Bureau chief, and he's super connected. And Rob Ferguson works at the Queen's Park Bureau, and he's a great reporter. So I don't take issue with them on the headline. Far from it. But here's the headline for you. Doug Ford fights back against Greenbelt report with ad campaign. As Tory insiders say, he can weather the crisis. Was that, was that last part ever in doubt that he wouldn't weather the crisis? And what does that mean? I've said this before, and I said it Wednesday and even Tuesday, the day before this was going to all come out. It's going to be worse than the premier would have thought it would have been. Neutrals would have thought it would have been. And it's been more merrymaking for the NDP and the liberals, including the Ontario liberal leadership candidates than anybody would have expected two weeks ago, though they were beating that drum. What? W- how did this happen? How did all these construction? Uh, how did all these uh, uh, construction projects that are potentially going to take place on the greenbelt? How did they get given out? How did only a couple of developers get in on the bids? Where was the transparency? Where was the consultation? Again, we can have conversations about the greenbelt. We can have discussions about where we should build, when we need to build, and what should be the priority. Is it sprawl or is it density? It's probably density. It's build houses near transit, near grocery stores, near gyms, near recreation facilities, and yeah, near roads. For those car-loving people, I will defend you car-loving people because I need a car. Our household needs two cars. It does not work without two cars. We have to have two cars right now. So I know there's a lot of people in the city proper that are like all these cars. Well, yeah, but you need cars. People need cars. So, but, but you would build these new places near highways and near transit and near all the things that I mentioned. You would do that before you would build big homes that'll be out in the green belt that look like they're just about big backyards on Lake Ontario access to, you know, Golf courses. I'm not. I'm, I, I defend car drivers. I'll defend golfers as well. It's a great recreational sport, and 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 we shouldn't uh, mock the people that do it. And by the way, it's cheaper than ever to play. So it's not like we're talking about some kind of elitist thing anymore. We're just not. And uh, I'm all. I'm more pro exercise and and sport than anti exercise or sport. But it's the process. So we can have conversations about putting land into the green belt, taking land out of the green belt. But if everything was above board, it wouldn't have been so secretive. If everything was so honorable, we wouldn't be having so many of these discussions. 
And if it didn't matter, the premier himself wouldn't have said in 2018, public told me not to touch the green belt, not going to touch it. And he kept that promise the first term. You can you can definitely defend him there. He kept that promise. Not a word of this going into the 22 election wasn't a campaign issue. It wasn't an, an agenda item during a debate. I think MPPs didn't have to go around and defend the process here, but they will now. So, yes, he's going to weather the storm. He's not resigning. He's not. There's not an election coming up in 10 months where the other candidates will go Greenbelt, 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 liberal NDP, green, whatever. That's not going to happen here. Nate Erskine Smith was on the show yesterday, and I, I documented that it's still going to be difficult. It's still going to be difficult. Conservatives are really ruling the roost and running the day in rural areas. Unions are moving conservative outside of the teachers unions and outside of the nurses. Same thing is true. And I told him, I said, if you're Ontario liberal leader, you got to be out there and you've got work to do. It's a tricky task, though, isn't it? Because we talk about rural voters and rural Ontario has certainly voted heavily conservative, especially in the last couple elections. So either I mean, why does anybody, you know, go and vote for anybody? Either they really like that candidate or they really, really don't like the other options. You mentioned Sar- Sarnia Lampton, the liberal candidate last time out, got less than 5% of the vote. This is clearly something that you, if your leader, uh, need to change, need to alter. You need to connect with these people. There's no question about it. And, it, and it's partly showing up. It's certainly listening to concerns, and then it's responding to those concerns. And I mean, that's Saturday I was in Strathroy, Sunday in Watford in Wyoming, uh, Monday, we spent the day in Sarnia, and you've got to rebuild an active presence and relationships on the ground in all of these communities and, and, and serve these communities. And it is about municipal infrastructure and smaller communities. It's about food security, integrated infrastructure, and it's about listening and then acting on concerns and making sure that there's an ongoing relationship. Yeah, it's all of that. It ends up being all of that. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. A really important issue. Um, and I think it's come to the forefront. And I know it's going to be at the forefront of the next federal election. And I didn't think it was the last time out. And the next provincial election. And it's really strange. But I didn't think it was a huge topic in the last provincial election. But you hear all the time, housing crisis, housing crisis. We've talked about that with the Greenbelt controversy this week. But you can't talk housing without talking homelessness. And you can't talk homelessness without talking mental health. Um, what's happening in the city of London, my hometown? I lived in London, went to school there uh, and spent seven years of post-secondary there at Western and Fanshawe. So I know it really well, every nook and cranny. Um, and they're experiencing what you're experiencing in your community, whether it's Mississauga or Richmond Hill or Ajax. You're seeing more people on the street. And the weather's good. And the, and I think there's there's reasons behind that. Um, but I, I, I think these are important conversations to have. And we don't, if we don't throw everything at the table and also back it with data, which our next guest has done um, through the city and through that, uh, that element of mathematics, um, we're, we're just speculating. And speculation and conjecture and theory usually doesn't get us anywhere. It usually doesn't get us closer to the finish line of solving a problem. I'm happy to bring on the deputy mayor of London, Ontario, the Forest City. He is Sean Lewis. Sean, thanks for making the time for me and our audience. I appreciate you coming on. Oh, good morning, Greg. Happy to make the time for you. And, uh, you know, 
you're welcome back to visit London anytime you want to come back. See, uh, other other mayors and deputy mayors have told me otherwise, but y- you know, I um, I didn't cause too many problems in the community over the years, but I, I appreciate that. It, this is quite something. And I, by the way, I, I I will take issue with one news story that's put it together, and the concept is explosive allegations, and I'm like, they're not explosive, they're real. And they're not allegations because they're based on your data, but you're showing you have numbers that document people are arriving in the city of London from other municipalities in the first six months of 2023. And they're looking to first support, but your city only has so much support. And these people aren't from your municipalities. Yeah. uh, So I, I have been hearing this for a long time uh, that it's no surprise to anybody. Uh, you know, these, there's been conjecture as you alluded to rumors about this for, for many, many years. I've heard it since the day I was elected five, almost five years ago. Um, but we've seen in London, uh, particularly as we've come out of the, the pandemic period, uh, a doubling of the number of folks who are seeking our, our homelessness support and shelter services. And that did not just happen organically. Uh, and so when then we start looking at the numbers and, you know, last in the first six months of this year, we've had uh, 319 people that we've successfully diverted to natural communities of support. Now, some of those natural communities of support, I will say, uh, include staying here in London, but connecting with a family member or connecting uh, with an old friend who has said, you know, we got a, a place where you can, you know, you can couch surf for a month or you we've got a sure. room that you can stay in for a while. So. It, it looks like a whole lot of different things, but I think the really key thing to focus in on here is that, and there's a couple question marks on a couple of these files, so there is a small range here, but of that number, 60 to 70 of those folks have said to us, London was not our choice. We're, we're here because we were either brought here or, or promised that things were better here, and we showed up and they're not. Um, and, and that's the reality that we're facing. And one of the reasons for me bringing this issue up is in two weeks, London is going to host the Association of Municipalities of Ontario conference. We're going to have municipal leaders here from all across Ontario. And it's time we have a discussion amongst ourselves and then create a united front to make a position and, and take a stand that says we are going to condemn organizations, whether they are uh, well-intentioned and, and just misinformed or whether they're just trying to, you know, move the problem along for somebody else to deal with. We're going to condemn that practice, and then we're going to start working on a plan to start addressing it. Um, and, and that needs to include a few different components. You know, there has to be some consequences if, if organizations who are receiving public funding are found doing this, which, you know, in my mind might include their public funding being withdrawn. Yeah. Um, because we don't think that this is, and I want to be really clear, like I'm not saying that, the city of Toronto or the, the Richmond Hill or Mississauga is, is through their staff organizing buses to send people to London. But we do know that whether it's an individual or whether it's a well-intentioned uh, organization who just, they're overwhelmed themselves. So they do a quick Google search and they say, oh, well, London's got lots of supports and services for homeless people. I, Let's get you there. Um, yeah. They don't do the legwork that's, that to find out that, our services are busting at the seams just like theirs. That's what I'm hearing. Sean Lewis, by the way, joining us, Deputy Mayor uh, from London, Ontario, on Toronto Today. I hear two things in in what you're saying. Y- y- you don't have the space. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the space. You don't have the social services. And we're combining that with the notion that in some of these cases, 
some of them, people are are getting deceived. They're getting told there's a yellow brick road of services. If you're not getting what you need to get to in this city or that city, London's the spot for you. And they put these people on a bus for free at no cost to them. And the bus drops them off somewhere in your city and they're left to fend for themselves in essence. That's not right. That's that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and it isn't right. And, and we've got to stop it. Um, and I understand and I'm sure your listeners understand too, there are smaller communities in this province that have actually zero services available in them to help folks who start to experience homelessness, you know, whether they've lost a job, whether there's been a marital breakdown, whatever circumstance led them there, uh, an addiction or a mental health issue, there's just no services. So from those smaller communities, they've got to come to a bigger city to seek help because the, the province has never provided services in those cities. How long do you think this has been, sorry, how long do you think this has been happening for? When did this sort of like, it it sort of probably starts to bubble up and then you're like, oh my goodness, well, we do need to look into the numbers and the data. When did this sort of cross your desk the first time that people are being transported, homeless people are being transported into London as opposed to their their native Londoners, as it were? Well, like I said, I've been hearing this since the, the day I was first elected almost five years ago. But it's really, really come to the surface in the last two years um, where I'm hearing it constantly. Uh, You know, it seems like every week somebody is telling me this, uh, whether I'm out in the community meeting with a business owner or whether I'm just talking to folks uh, in general uh, at a community space or at a church barbecue or whatever. um, I'm hearing it constantly now. And so that's why I said to our staff, "I, I need some data. I need to know what your system is telling you is happening here. And when they came back and said to me, in the first half of this year, 60 to 70 people have told us that they're here in London, but it wasn't their choice to be here. And so do some want to stay? Do some want to stay? And then some say, I I got given a raw deal here. I want to go back to where I'm originally from, or I want to go back to where my origin is or where I might have a relative. Yep, we have have a mix of both. Um, And and in that uh, first period of this year, uh, our staff have actually you know, directly arranged for, paid for, and, and, you know, made the necessary arrangements at the other end so that folks had somebody waiting for them when, when they got there. We've gotten 33 of those people back to their, their natural communities of support um, directly. Then some other folks have been able to get back because we've been able to connect them with family. They've been able to arrange their own sets of circumstances, uh, and that's great too. Uh, but then we have people who say, no, I don't want to go back. Listen, it's not good there. I, you know, and we don't, we don't discourage them from staying that way. If they want to stay here, uh, we will do our best to help them. But we're also honest with them that the wait lists are long, the services are overrun, and, yeah. and we can't guarantee that we're going to be able to really help you. We're not going to make you leave, but we probably are not going to be able to provide you the help that you thought you were going to get here. I only got a minute, Sean, but how much, how much confidence do you have that all the big city mayors can get on board and there won't be finger pointing and there won't be ideological squabbles about this? How confident are you? Everybody would say, well, we condemn the idea that we're just shipping off our problems to another city's. Well, I I'm hopeful, but I recognize there's politics involved Um, Mm -hmm. but I'm hopeful that we can all first recognize that there's a problem here because until we present a united front, and you mentioned the provincial and federal elections, and I will completely agree with you on that, this was not a big enough issue in either of those elections, So it's and it's falling to the municipalities, so we need to stand together 
Mm-hmm. And we need to say to Ottawa and to Queen's Park, we need help. And we yeah. cannot keep doing this to each other. We're, we're now yeah. team municipal government. And we're standing up and saying, get to the table, feds and province, because we need help here. I hope we can stay in touch on this issue, Sean. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Greg. Happy to join you and uh, have a great uh, weekend ahead. And uh, obviously, as this issue develops, be in touch if you want to reconnect on this. Let's do it. All right. There's Sean Lewis, Deputy Mayor from London, Ontario. I want to open the phones, 416-870-6400. I spent an extra minute with Sean because I wanted to ask about that. I'm already getting texts, 416-870-6400. You're saying it's happening in North Bay. I saw it with my own two eyes in Sudbury almost 23 months ago. Tent community. Those all didn't feel, seem, and I'll say it, I'll say it, um, perceive, perception was not those were people born in Sudbury. So what's going on? How do you get to Sudbury? How do you get to Timmins? How do you get to North Bay? Something's going on with this. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. So many good questions about what we want from our current education system. And we delineate between public and private. We sure have different needs, I think, when we go uh, from elementary to secondary. And, and opinions change. And the needs of our kids evolve. And when you see who they are at 14 compared to 6 you get a different vibe of, of what you want from a teacher. I, You know this. My parents were both teachers. So um, there's there's no perfect classroom scenario. But I, I think especially post-pandemic, we're allowed to weigh in and we're allowed to sort of point to some alarming numbers and say the basics sh- should be there. And maybe we didn't we didn't act like it was a five alarm fire when we got all our kids back into classes last year. I'm eager to have a conversation right now uh, with Maddie DiMuccio, CEO of Society for Quality Education. And I'll tell you how to find them on the web as well. Maddie, thank you very much for making the time for our audience today. Good morning, Greg. Thanks for having me on. What's your organization and uh, about and, and what are its purposes? What are what are its goals? Well, we're, our organization is a registered charity in Canada. We've been around for over 20 years, and we promote exactly what it is, which is quality education in Canadian school public school boards. Um, we very much believe in providing parents with a choice in education, and um, you know that includes making it a parent-driven uh, model as opposed to just whatever model some school board decides is going to be. Um, and that, and we really do uh, push academics, um, not as much as ideology. I mean, for sure, for sure, it's the what we know as the three R's: arithmetic, writing, and reading. And we, you know, um, that's those are just the old-fashioned fundamentals. And we're frustrated. I think parents are frustrated with seeing that there's a lack of that. What's that? What's that sort of balancing act? Because if you remember high school, you probably had teachers in, and I, I argue they were more in the social sciences, more the history teachers who would talk about an election the night before, talk about things, policies they liked from, you know, the premier or even the U.S. president. I I went to school a lot during the uh, the Reagan years in the United States, so I had a lot of history teachers in high school rail on against Ronald Reagan. My dad was probably one of them. But what's that balancing act between societal norms and our evolution? When you talk about uh, ideology, what's the balancing act between hitting the basics hard, which I'm a big subscriber and purveyor of, but also balancing what is happening in our world that kids not might might not get in in the home scenario? What's the balance? Well, that's a very good uh, point because, I, as a matter of fact, I do remember, uh, you know, when I was in grade five, for example, and, you know, Trudeau resigned. And I remember 
you know, teachers, you know, bringing that up. But I also remember, interestingly enough, how my I kind of tuned out because at that age, kids are not really interested in politics. And mm-hmm. um, so I find that what how do we balance it is that is we really balance it by looking at what our kids need and what our kids are interested in and what matters uh, to their future. Really, what matters to their future is having those basic fundamentals. Um, when it comes to ideology, I prefer to keep, you know, ideology should always be in the home and parents do teach their children tolerance and, and, and you know, they, they certainly have support for that. Um, when, you know, when you're talking about things such as, you know, gym class, for example, you know, for example, we're seeing today a pandemic of childhood obesity. So education on good health and physical activity is also important. I do remember that when I was, you know, in high school, we were learning about those things. But, you know, when we talk about gym class today in our schools, it's about which gender is going to be in which class and which pronouns are appropriate. And I think that kids are just tuning tuning out. We're seeing that because they don't, this, this isn't stuff that is essential for them as much as learning about physical health, about, you know, good choices, good, um, that sort of thing. And, and, you know, when I see education issues covered in the news, it seems to be all about the culture wars. It, it, it seems know? to be that. And, and here's what I'd say. What, what I'd say is uh, discussion about gender ideology and pronouns. I, I think it tends to bring out of uh, the woods a, a lot of bad actors who are looking to score political points. And and I, I, I accept that that's just the world we live in. But I also make the case like you that I think things have gotten a bit skewed in one direction from extremes on both sides. And there's a whole bunch of people, Maddie, a whole bunch of people, I don't know, 85, 90% of parents who say, I I, I want it there. I want morals and ethics uh, documented in school and treat each individual case. If you've got a case of sexism, racism, homophobia, right. anything, Absolutely. let's we, just like us, right? If we swore at yeah. a teacher, if we yeah. hit somebody with a hockey stick over the head of recess, treat yeah. things on an individual level as yeah. opposed to I'm worried all of you are bad. So here's me and I'm going to tell you how the world works. And, and there's not that balance. There's not that balance well, you're, anymore. You're absolutely right. And you mentioned earlier in the show, you know, students today are at risk because primarily we're living in the aftermath of COVID lockdowns and the outcomes of Zoom classrooms, I have three kids, and I, I can tell you that um, I've seen I've seen those those outcomes. And you know, this led to a lot of lost time for a lot of vulnerable kids. And I'm hearing a lot of anxiety from parents too. Like there doesn't seem to be a real plan to address that from the Ministry of Education or school boards that has been communicated to parents about the problem. And parents are are right to be concerned. You know, kids are kids are going into school into university haven't not having had an exam for two years. You know, so you got it. To, yeah. You know, we need to be focused on academics and not the politics and ideology that we're increasingly seeing. And we need to to focus on preparing kids for the professions they choose. You know, they need to be able to to read effectively, to write and communicate effectively. They need to be able to solve problems. They need the essential tools to be able to think critically and they need to be able to challenge what's presented as opposed to just accepting an opinion as fact. And this is this is where I, I talk about those culture wars that, you know, my opinion is the fact. And I and I and kids will argue against that. And when they do argue, sometimes they get canceled about that. Like I've seen that with my own boys in high school when they have these discussions. And it's really concerning to me. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to, to focus on, on those mm. academics again. And, and, you know, I agree. Focus on inclusivity. Absolutely. There's always a place and time for that. 
but I, I just think it's getting out of hand. You know, we've seen um, just I, recently this, the, the tragic story involving the suicide of a TDS uh, B school principal re- recently, and, and these are the types of things that we don't we want to hear less about. Yeah, I, 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 Maddie DiMuccio is our guest, by the way, CEO of Society for Quality Education. That, as you can imagine, has been a, a hot button topic. I hear from a lot of people on all sides. I'll never make everybody happy with my commentary on it or opinion of it. But what I look at, Maddie, is I say, let's teach people about diversity and, and, and inclusion. But but let's also let's also isolate incidents where mm-hmm. it went too far. Let's isolate yeah. specific moments where maybe because because I don't get stuff right 99 times out of 100 so what do i do when i when i get wrong the one time out of 100 what do i how do i adapt how do i adjust and it just feels like again on both sides of of the ideological spectrum or political spectrum you get people who who never seem to acknowledge their mistakes and it it leads to a lot of frustrating arguments about it and i think that's a great solution to that is to Mm. to isolate incidences and using them as as moments to teach but not to just focus on that alone i'm glad i'm glad we tracked you down i'm out of time but i hope we can have more conversations i really appreciate you uh being on the show this morning Yes, thanks for having me as a guest, and and I hope you have a great week. Thanks for the discussion. Absolutely. You can find this website, sqecanada.org. And again, uh, that's Maddie DiMuccio joining us. You you look into this. It's not, this isn't some, you know, right-wing, left-wing think tank thing. This isn't some ideologically uh, challenging uh, or challenged perspective. These are parents. Parents are going to think what they feel, and they're going to be fiercely protective about what their kids end up getting taught. And I, again, I grew up in a household that was, you know, a little bit left of uh, a (laughs) little bit left of Harvey Milk. And at the same time, I, I, I knew to treat things in their own individual fashion. I knew to do that. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. What you might spot in Toronto's harbor, um, if you're going to Center Island or you're all over the place, you know, even near Ontario Place, Bud Stage, is uh, you'll see sharks. But they're not sharks. They'll look like boxes. And they're doing really good work, really good work to take waste out of the water. Um, This is a remarkable invention called the waste shark. And when we talk about environmental things that I think I don't think there's much politics or ideology involved. We all can approve of this. This is an autonomous surface vessel that cleans our waterways. We want to bring on uh, the CEO of Rand Marine. And uh, he's Richard Hardiman. Richard, thanks very much for making the time here in Toronto. We appreciate you coming on. Greg, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. What a concept. Um, and now a concept sometimes uh, is in somebody's head, then it's on a yellow notepad, but it never comes into practicality. How long have cities like Toronto been using waste sharks? Where did you sort of make your first uh, impact into water water in a city? I came up with the idea in, I think, 2013. We first introduced it into Rotterdam, uh, where we're based in the Netherlands, in the port of Rotterdam. And then uh, since then, we were in about 31 different countries operating. But uh, yeah, I think we started really making our impact in about 2017 in, in a number of cities. So it's a drone that goes in the water. What? How, how would you describe it and, and what does it do? Simplest way to look at it is it's a Roomba for water. So it floats on the top. Um, it's powered by two uh, little electric uh, thrusters, uh, and it skims the surface of the water. So uh, much like we, we base it on a whale shark, um, which has a very big mouth, and whatever's in front of it gets caught in its belly. That's exactly what we're trying to achieve with this uh, with this little whale shark of ours. So it can uh, now it, it takes pl- 
plastics are probably the biggest thing it ends up taking out that's litter-based, things that are floating, things that don't fall down to the surface. This is stuff that is on uh, at the water line and the waste shark can recognize those things. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is, is catch that, that plastic waste before it either drops to the bottom of the seabed where it's, it's very difficult to get to or it flows out into the ocean. So we see ourselves as one of the last lines of defense, um, sort of stopping the ocean having more plastic in it and, and cleaning up areas like, you know, um, uh, Port of Toronto and, and the waterfront there as well. So it, it, it's anything that is floating. Traditionally, it's, it's, it's trash, but more and more it's becoming um, invasive algaes as well. So this it right now, am I reading this right on, on your website on Ran Marine? People can go to ranmarine.io. This is a is this a pilot project for right now, or who's who's paying for this and, and what are sort of what can you tell me about the terms of uh, of the deal? This just started what a few weeks ago. Yeah, so I mean, the business has been around um, for the last five, six years, but we've got commercially involved in North uh, North America over the last year and a half. Um, so we lease them out, we sell them, uh, we do deals that we've done with uh, Toronto, um, and you, you can yeah, purchase or you can lease them, uh, or we have a lot of people sponsoring them. Uh, but as I say, we've got about 100 out, out there at the moment um, operating in, in different parts of the world, um, all cleaning up trash, 500, 500 kilograms a day they're capable of doing. And as you say, you know, it, it's kind of they're autonomous, so they, they, they swim around, they recognize what trash is, they recognize what a boat is, so they avoid that. They come back to shore, you empty them out, and you put them back in again. How much waste does uh, does each waste shark um, bring back a- at the end of the day uh, out of our waters? Really depends on how much debris there is in the in the in the, in the water. But we um, we calculate we can do up to half a ton a day per shark, um, which if you think about plastic is quite light. Um, that that's quite a significant uh, impact. That's really really something. Um, and again, I, I like I said, I think Richard Hardiman's our guest CEO of Ran Marine uh, Tech. I, I look at this and I think. We all have different opinions about what we should be doing for the environment. We all have different opinions about, can I do this? What's government's responsibility? What's What are the big tech tech companies' responsibilities? This just seems like a no-brainer that cities can do this more efficiently, less cost, and, uh, and, and there's not much debate about ideology. This just gets good work done in our waters. Yeah, I totally agree. So, so I mean, for, for, first and foremost, I've always been a businessman, so I'm not attacking this as a, I'm, I call myself an accidental environmentalist. <laughs> I, I wanted a more efficient way to clean rubbish out of water. That's all I wanted to do. Um, and we came up with a robot to do that. But we're a business. So, you know, it's a pleasure to go to work today, do something for the environment. But at the same time, we're there for profit. We're there to expand and, and make a bigger impact through the world by through commercial you know sales so it's a nice um it's a nice place uh, place to live you know we're, we're we're operating a great business got great clients um and and uh it's you know yeah it doesn't matter what your ideology is it's 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 making good uh good impact into the environmental well I, i'm looking at the waste sharks uh across the world map that's on your website and i see a lot in the southern u.s i see spots in the gulf of mexico i think i see a lot of spots in in florida so again you know it's it's not about ideology left right republican democrat in the states it it looks like if it's a sensible solution and it's cost efficient governors and and mayors want these things i think that's the win you know i mean we laugh about um florida all the time you know it is it is a definite state but it's our biggest sales um sales market at the moment you know 
Um, they want to do something about the water. This is cost efficient. It makes sense. We're not using um, fossil uh, uh, fossil fuels or anything like that. It's all battery operated. Yeah. Um, your maintenance is lower. You know, there's a lot of return on your investment quite fast. I don't want to make it all about business, but as you say, you know, it, it's an applicable solution that that that, that means something to someone who's paying. And, and I've, some of our clients, like Disney, um, Universal in in the states, um, we have ports down there as well as um, up in Canada as well. So our clients vary, but they see they see it as a tool that is useful. It's, it's one of those scenarios as well where I look and I think, yeah, private enterprise, if you run a theme park and you got water involved or you're, you know, yes, the Sea Worlds, the Bush Gardens, the Universals, this makes perfect sense because we all have left those places with our kids or whoever at the end of the day. And you're like, ah, somebody threw this in the water or threw that in the water. Your sharks are going to are going to eat these up like Pac-Man. Exactly. That's, that's they're, they're hungry hippos. That's all they do is they spend their time gobbling up whatever waste is on the surface. Um, and it's quite a, it's quite agnostic. I mean, again, the clients, I mean, they're, they're councils or they're municipal clients or they're private. A lot of sponsorships as well. A lot of people who want to do um, have a CSI program but don't necessarily know how to get into, you know, returning, returning on that impact. Um, we've got a lot of people who buy the drones and then give them to NGOs. Um, now, uh, Toronto Harbor is a busy place. Boats come in, boats come out. Do uh, what? What is that risk factor there? Are there any things you're still looking to tweak? Whether it's boat traffic, swimmers, even paddle boarders, what do you see? Yeah, we always we always sort of um, trying to mitigate the safety side. These things don't move fast. You know, trash doesn't uh, run away at, at high speed. So we're talking about three kilometers an hour. Um, at most, we tend to operate on the side of the water, so not in shipping um, shipping lanes, because that's where most of the trash is pushed to with the bow waves. Um, so we really concentrate on those on those chokeholds. You'll be walking around a, a marina or a port, and you'll see that all that waste gets pushed into one corner. That's where we're going for. Um, so we're just trying to make it more efficient. Instead of scouring the whole football field, as you would say, we would you know go and go and hit the areas that really matter. It's uh, ranmarine.io. This is rather remarkable. Um, I've already, we're already hearing from people who've seen these things, and and they're uh, they're just uh, w- like their mouths are agape. Uh, but now I think they have a sense listening to this segment, Richard, what they actually are. And I'm on the sponsorship page as well, and I, I'm saying for 640 Toronto for Toronto today. Maybe like, I'm not authorized, but maybe a quid pro quo will work something <laughs> out where you can play our show in the. Mo- I don't know if people want to wake up to that if they're out for a nice run, but maybe so. You never know. I think it's a great way to grow the audience, Greg. (laughs) I'm going to hold you to that. Again, you know, uh, the tape doesn't lie. Richard, thanks so much for this. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant invention. um, And I'm happy to to advocate it and, and, uh, and amplify it as well. Thank you very much for the time. Let's stay in touch on this. Greg, thanks so much. Great to be involved in the GTA. Uh, yeah, it's great to be in Canada with these trucks. Lovely to have you here. And, and Vancouver, Halifax, a lot of other cities should be listening. Richard Hardiman, CEO of Ran Marine Technology. I didn't get a dime for that. I, I didn't get a dime for that, but it's ranmarine.io. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Are you in or out? Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. So are we in or out? You're out. You are over and out. No, 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 no. You insulted him a little bit. I'm okay with it, but now you're making me feel weird about it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So uh, <laughs> certainly this crosses uh, sporty sport lines, but tomorrow Jose Bautista will be inducted into the level of excellence, not his, uh, just his name, uh, but he'll be there in person. And Lyle, you spotted this. He will sign a one-day contract with the Toronto Blue Jays. This happens in the NFL all the time. If somebody plays like one year with a team, like Thurman Thomas played one year with the Miami Dolphins, but everybody knows him as a Buffalo Bill. 
Jose Bautista played <laughs> played for eight teams in his career. Like he did that. And uh and and was very much a journeyman before arriving in Toronto at age twenty seven. But you spotted this, he's gonna sign a one day deal and retire as a blue jay officially. And you're seeing this a lot more in sports other than the NFL too. Daniel Alfredson of the Ottawa Senators comes to mind. He signed like a one week contract so he could retire as a send, but it makes sense. I He played for a lot of teams, but I do think he made the biggest impact on Toronto. Of course, the bat flip moment, everybody's going to remember that. I don't think there's been a Blue Jays game that has been that watched or that important since then. Here it is. Uh, you'll Again, Wednesday afternoon, game five against Texas, wild seventh inning, Blue Jays down by one. You'll remember exactly where you were when he did this. Five ball deep left field. Yes, sir. Just that simple. Uh, Three-run home run. Uh, and then people started, like, throwing things. The Rangers got upset. I felt like there was always a big story that a beer from the 500 level landed on a baby in the 100 level. Do you guys remember that this was, oh, like, a yeah. story or something? That whole like, game we, was weird. Can we make that, like, the Nirvana baby? Can we check in on that? That baby's <laughs> yeah. nine now. <laughs> do, the, do an <laughs> interview with that baby. She can talk about the incident. Yeah. <laughs> Worse, the lawsuit. But I. this is the in or out. Jose Bautista, are you in on him being the most important Blue Jay of the 21st century? And that sounds like it's really easy to say, but it's because we're 23 years into the damn century. But I can't think of anybody else. And that includes the late Roy Halladay. Like, that's a big statement because Roy ha- Jose Bautista is not going to the not going to Cooperstown. He's not going to the Hall of Fame. And Roy Halladay was a. Blam, no-brainer, Hall of Famer, won the Cy Young Award twice, uh, wanted to go and play for a team that could make the playoffs, so he asked for a trade, and the Blue Jays famously traded him to the Philadelphia Phillies. What did he do, by the way, in his first postseason start? He pitched a no-hitter. So, and I know, right, early uh, death in this terrible plane accident uh, that happened, I, I I was on the air the morning we started to get word of it, in November of 2017, and you can imagine the shock. But I'm I'm in. I think I I don't know that it's a no doubter though, because I think some people will be Team Halliday on this. Lyle, where do you stand? See, that's the thing. I'm very on the fan. I'm going to be in on it because I think that the two most important moments in Blue Jays history is obviously touch them all, Joe, when they won the World Series, and this the bat flip. The I do I have to be in, even though I am a, a huge Holiday fan. I love Doc. I I think you got to be in mm. on it. I don't think there's a question here. I think he has to be. Gord, can you? Carlos Delgado also is on the level of excellence. Carlos Delgado had some huge Blue Jays moments, mostly from the late 90s to five or six years into the 21st century. But what would you say about it? Yeah, Carlos, you could, if you're talking about all time Blue Jays, then we're having a whole different discussion, right? Because I remember when he first came up, back when the outfield had windows on it, he, he hit a ball off the window. And I remember everyone was talking about that. But this is, this is playoffs and this is when the, the big people step up and this is, to me, is a no-doubter. I mean, Holiday, you knew every fifth day you were going to get a, a competitive game, if not a guaranteed win, right? But it's like you don't sit around and go, you remember August 16th, 2006? No, not, you, you don't have that. I Everyone, think you're right. I think yeah. there's not a Holiday moment. And I looked it up. I remember looking it up when I when I even first moved here. And when I first moved here from Detroit in 07, and by the way, it was a big deal. Holiday would come pitch for the Jays in Detroit and – You'd see a bump in attendance. You clearly would. Oh, yeah. But I remember researching holiday starts against non-holiday starts for almost the entire Blue Jays' career. It barely moved. There's a few more people, 
But that tells you, like, when there's a tone around the team at the time and it's not good and they're losing a lot, you're not getting, like, all, they'll have 40,000-plus tonight against the Cubs. Then it's the Cubs. So some people are Cubs fans just because they're supposed to be. You'll get 42,000 tonight, tomorrow for the Bautista celebration and for Sunday as well. But we all remember what the Dome is like when they win 74 games and lose 88 and you can't give tickets away in August and September. Nobody wants to go. No. And a lot of those were holiday starts where people weren't just, just weren't interested in the team. Yeah, and then even in some of those lean years when Bautista was first starting to change his career and become this big hitter, he was flirting with the you know the the home run. He was uh, the home run record. He was getting you know, and then he just kind of tailed off. But I mean, everyone was talking about that. Yeah, and, and he was like, he was crushing balls when he would hit home runs sometimes too. And it's just like that single bat flip moment. It just it just changed. Everything. Here's the other thing I'd bring up, Lyle. What's weird about it is the Jays winning in 93 and 92, they had a lot of hired guns on that team. Free agents, guys, they trade for Ricky Henderson. They would sign Paul Molitor. They would sign Jack Morris. But those guys were at the Dave Stewart all at the very end of their careers. Bautista, again, Toronto felt like last chance saloon for him because teams were giving up on him. He played for Baltimore, Kansas City, and Pittsburgh all before Toronto and he came here and and was lousy in 21 games at the end of 08 and you're thinking this guy is not a player and then the next year we had just an okay year in 2009 but then in 2010 somehow some way at age 29 he hits 54 home runs the thing is with Halliday you you knew early 20s how good he could be Bautista feels like ours, even though he played for those three teams. Does that make sense that he just felt like more of a homegrown thing than a Paul Molitor or Jack Morris? No, I think I think it's fair to say that. And I think it's because just like he thrived here for some reason. Sometimes it takes going to a different market, getting a different audience in front of you. And especially Toronto is a very strange market for baseball. We're the only team north of the border. So when you come up here, you have more of a focus on you. There's not a bunch of other teams really close to the area. You have the whole country eyes on you. I think he was given more responsibility, maybe. we talk, I talked about this with some friends of mine before. Yeah. And we were trying to figure out what the secret was because just like you said, it, it doesn't make any statistical sense to come from those teams, come here, and all of a sudden that late in his career kind of have that big spike. But I, I think it was. It was the responsibility. It was the fact that he had more eyes on him and he was yeah. maybe treated with a little bit more respect. Jose Bautista in, he's the most important Blue Jay of the 21st century. That's almost 25 years now. It's almost a quarter century we're talking or is it Roy Halladay, or do you have another choice? 